0: Since 2011, Association of Professional Futurists have recognized the best work of students studying futures and foresight at the university. I find it exciting to hear and meet talented and enthusiastic people who find the futures and foresight community through their studies. And I love to hear about the futures that those people wish to bring into being.
1: It's not easy to find a channel to speak about sex about intimacy, about emotions, right? And thank you for that, for for this opening. What we learn after our workshops, every time we do it, we debrief with the people. And one thing that caught our heart and attention was one person said, don't let the discussion die. We all need that. And thank you for not letting the discussion die.
2: We're all better for having done this, for having come through the other side of it. Um, We all want to see better futures, right? Not just about sex and intimacy, but about all kinds of things. And this has only fortified that desire within us. it's also told us that it's okay and it's necessary to have hard conversations because even in the best, most aspirational future, there are still going to be hard conversations.
0: Those are two of our guests today on FuturePod, Ingrid Furtado and David Goeth and the rest of the Shameless Collective, who won the award for best masters group work in the APF awards this year. Welcome to FuturePod, Ingrid.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having
0: us. You're part of the Shameless Collective that won the APF best masters work this year, so so, congratulations to you and the rest of your
1: team. Thank you, Peter. Yes, I'm part of this amazing group. We are five in our group and we are very honored to be here to talk about this amazing topic, fascinating topics. And yeah, thank you again.
0: <laughs> so we are going to hear from all the group, but let's start with you Ingrid. Now, if you know anything about FuturePod, you know that when we do our guest interviews, everybody gets to tell their story. So I'm going to ask you and we'll hear from all the others. Can we have a quick little Ingrid story, how you became a member of the Futures and Foresight community?
1: Yeah, sure. I decided I was very like in, in between careers, right? My background is in journalism. And I moved to the U.S. and I always wanted to go back to school after my, my bachelor. But I was very like, I didn't want to do, keep on the communication field. I was really willing to do something different, but I haven't found something different. Until a friend of mine from my work, she was doing the program, Foresight program at U of H. And then I was like, wow, this is different. It caught my eyes, caught my heart too. And then I decided to like, maybe that's my path. So that's how I started during COVID, my, my path in foresight.
0: And so how far through the master's course are you?
1: Oh, I'm almost graduating. Woo! finally, I'm very happy. The date, right? I am planning to graduate next spring.
0: Okay. Yeah. And you got work lined up in the futures and foresight area?
1: Thank you for asking that, not yet exactly. One thing that I have been learning very well, it's about uncertainties, right? Foresight is quite new for for certain industries and I am really trying to open space where I am right now, if I have this chance, I don't have a, a clear line past for foresight for me right now, but I think we create the path too. (laughs) So I'm working on that.
0: Okay. So you're working on the future of Ingrid.
3: We
1: always have that, (laughs) right?
0: So can we make one of the other
1: team? Yeah. Can I pass to Hausen?
4: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ingrid. Yeah, my name is Hausen. How I found foresight was really... I think by chance, like a lot of people, but I always had this intention of spending agency at scale and because I had a good friend do the same for me where I was really, I had way more choice and in, in say in, in how I live my life. And so I had a background in data analytics and leadership development throughout college until I uh, was paired up as a mentor with a uh, the head of HR at Disney's. Richard Ramsey. And he gave me a choice. He was like, "Do you want a mentorship in data analytics or foresight? And I was like, data analytics is pretty developed. I don't know. He didn't even say foresight. He was like, future thinking. And so I was like, oh, let me try the, let me try the future one. I can always figure out data analytics later. And so we did three, six hour sessions. And the first session I ended up crying because it was just like serendipitous or crazy to be able to sit in a room and find something that has that great of a fit with to be able to impact and empower people at scale. It's like exactly what I wanted. You know, at the end of that session at the end of those sessions he was saying oh I'm 60 something How you're 19. This is like three, four years ago, five years ago and he was like you can do anything you want with this work or not whatever you want to do and I definitely wanted to do something with it so my goal is to my, fr- my first job was to be a futurist and so I went to Kedge future school and then landed at U of H and now I work in local government as a futurist.
0: Cool so yeah again a lot of people meet futures and foresight and feel validated they feel hound they feel net that's, that's a pretty common story mate thanks for that. Can we me meet someone else on
4: the table? Yeah, I'd like to pass it on over to Elizabeth. She is amazing. Go ahead.
3: Thanks, Allison. I'm Elizabeth Herfel. I found futures and foresight through industrial design. I, For my undergrad, I went to the University of Cincinnati. And while I was there, I took a speculative design elective. And I was just super into the research aspect of the project, and it was just really exciting for me. And my professor told me that if I'm into this, I should check out the University of Houston. and I put that idea on the back burner for a little bit. And then the pandemic started, and we were just you know all hit in the face with there's this huge need for thinking about the future. and handling change so yeah i decided to apply and go for it and yeah i just graduated from university of houston in this past spring so that was really exciting for me and now i'm doing foresight research at sap excellent excellent
0: so yeah I just did a podcast with the individual master's winner, and she also came out of an engineering design background as well. Design thinking was something that actually was in your project too, wasn't it?
3: Definitely. Yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap between design thinking and futures and foresight work. I'll pass it on to David.
2: Oh, hi, everyone. I'm David. I am a little bit of the, I guess I'm an odd duck in this group. I am a soon-to-be retired military officer. And as I was approaching retirement, my wife said, you need to finish the master's degree before you retire. (laughs) So I began looking in earnest for a master's degree. I was originally looking for something related to intelligence studies. That is my career field. And the University of Houston program showed up in my search and it caught my eye. Hadn't heard of the foresight discipline before, but when I looked into it, started poking around the website, everything about it just pushed all my buttons. This was, it's like Intel, but grander in scope, and scale. And it was neat that it looked further than the next budget cycle or the next election cycle, but it also looked wider than just war and national security, right? Yeah, yeah, those things are important. But there's more to life than just that. And that's what really drew me to the program. I feel like, it, it, it's, like a, a, it's a maturation of, of stuff I've studied for most of my life. I yeah. just wonderful to I am in the last few months of my service, and I'm able to take advantage of an opportunity to take an internship. So I'm actually doing... Intern work with uh, the transit futuring team at Ford Motor Company as part Excellent.
0: of Motor. Excellent. That's awesome. And it's interesting too that in the future, there is no age difference because the future hasn't happened. We all have ideas about what the future should, could, might, uh, might not be. And age doesn't really play a factor. Right. It is the classic multi generational. Look, Spice.
2: No, I like that.
0: this is over the last two men. I, right? I will.
2: I will pass this over to Mushfika.
5: Hi, I'm Mushfika Jamaluddin. And um, it's interesting that you comment on that, Peter, around the multi-generationality of futures. I was just having a conversation the other day about this with one of the APF Emerging Fellows. Of just how cool it is that that it is so intergenerational, and particularly in a time when we don't have that many opportunities in many other spaces of our life, like it's pretty age age segregated. But to to share a little bit about me, I am actually graduating from the program this December, so I'm very excited about that. Uh, I'm also a leadership coach, and I support all types of leaders, but mostly I focus on social impact entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs. And my pathway into futures was actually through integral theory. I found Ken Wilber integral theory when I was in my mid-twenties, early twenties, and it was just a huge paradigm shift for me. And ever since then, I was on this journey of figuring out, like, how can I bring a more holistic perspective essentially into whatever work I do? And that's when I found integral futures. And that that kind of sealed the deal for me. I was like, this is oh. cool. I didn't know this existed. Really echoing a lot of what everyone else said here. And so I started my master's program in 2020. And then I did my coaching program in 2021. And I loved the intersection between the two. I found so much overlap. And I think that futures is so relevant to what we work on within leadership coachings. And then I think a lot of the coaching and facilitation uh, skills are so important within futures, especially when we're helping people think through very scary topics often, like even thinking about dealing with their own mortality or, as we'll get into a little bit later, other challenging emotions. And so I would say I'll make this maybe a short little ad for the fact that I will be looking for a job (laughs) post-December. And my work. (laughs) I'll say, it is really guided by a fascination with relationality. And I think that's why the intersection of coaching and futures. So I'm really curious to explore, like, how do we harness that towards more inclusive?
0: So, Masvika, let's start with the project origin story. Can you just explain to the listeners, well, Yeah, give a little bit about how these projects happen, but also then start to drill into your project that your team looked at?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So an observant listener would have gathered by now. We were classmates in the University of Houston program. (laughs) And in the spring of 2022, we all signed up for Design Futures, which is one of our elective courses. And it's taught by Adam Cowart. In the class, each week, we would go through and learn a different design framework or method and play around with it. And somewhere. In the beginning quarter of the class, we knew that we were going to be creating some kind of a design futures project at the end of the semester. So as a class, one day we brainstormed a bunch of topics and then we all self-selected into the topic of most interest to us. And so what was interesting is that our group was formed around the topic rather than forming the group first and then deciding on the
0: topic. Yeah.
5: Exactly. And I think that really worked out quite well for us. So we already started with knowing that we were all interested in a certain area, looking at the future of sex, which then expanded into the, the future of sex and intimacy. And then as we learned a new method, we would play around with it, get a feel for it, and then look at how, what does it look like to apply it to our topic. And like any design, very nonlinear often frustrating process, like some weeks we had an insight, other weeks, not so much. And that was cool and interesting and definitely a learning experience. And I would say that there was like two significant leaps for us that really helped to shape the project. The first was the week that we, I think we spent two weeks on transition design. And this was a framework that's taught at CMU. And that was really where we started to imagine like, what would it look like if we lived in a world where there wasn't shame around sex, around the practices of sex, around our sexual preferences, if there weren't the stigmas even around experimentation. And then the second turning point was when we were playing around with Brian David Johnson's five-step process for sci-fi prototyping. so in that process, you look at a technology as an inflection point and consider what results from that. And we took one of the leverage points from the transition design process and used that as an inflection point. And okay. so that was when the idea popped of, oh, what? Okay. So if there wasn't shame and we were living in this world, what would our kids be taught? And I think that really resonated with everyone in the group because most, if not all of us had a pretty abysmal experience with sex education in our school. Um, so in some ways, I think this was actually a healing process for us as well. Man, what would it have been like if we actually could have conversations beyond abstinence only? And so it went from there.
0: Yeah. It's very interesting. You you touched on a number of things there that the notion you've used the future, the idea of the future, because that's all it is. It's just an idea. But you've used the future and brought it back to your past and present. You used it almost as an integrator and a read of the story of you.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's interesting to me. And the thing about futures that excites me most is that we know that we can't really predict the future. We can't say what's going to happen. So it's all, we're all imagining it, but the power of it is how does it shape and reshape us now, today? and, And how can it like, help us craft new narratives.
0: Yeah, I think, as I said, it is one of the misnomers of non-futurist people that they think being able to forecast the future would be heaven. But of course, any student of philosophy would understand that a forecasted future is hell because it means you have no agency or nothing you do matters at all because it's all written. Ouch. Yes, it's it's a paradox. We think we want control, but the very thing as humans is we do not want control. We want openness openness and emergence. We can practice agency.
5: Yeah, that's that's one of the things that I think is really I don't know tricky about futures and exciting is I always describe futures as like the final step in futures work is to ultimately let go of control. And I think if, if we can get when we can get clients to go through that process and then arrive at their thinking maybe, oh, we'll get a better handle on the future. But ultimately they arrive at this point where you still have to jump. You still have to surrender sort of to it. And yeah. I think that's the coolest part. Thanks,
0: Lishvika. I think we're gonna to move to Elizabeth next, because she's gonna take up the next question. Great. Hi Elizabeth. So has talked a bit about the The process that you followed, and how a couple of methods, research methods and were quite pivotal. so you're going to go into really specifically what were the processes that really meant the most of the work and explain some of those to the listeners.
3: Yes, like Mishika explained, every week in this class we'd go through a different design features method, and Some of the bigger ones that informed our class were transition design out of Carnegie Mellon and sci-fi prototyping from Brian David Johnson. And then some of the smaller ones we used to fill in the gaps included like deliterization, thoughtless futures. One that really sticks out to me is gift from the future. This was probably I don't know, two or three weeks after we had selected this topic. So we were still in a very fuzzy phase, but we developed characters for when we're in this future. We developed personas for this future. And then we would give each other gifts based on this character that we'd created. And it was so funny. We were just giving each other really high tech sex toys and, and all this crazy stuff. And we eventually moved away from the technological angle, but yeah, that one was really, really fun for me. I also want to get into a little bit what the outcome of this semester was. At the end of the semester, if we presented at University of Houston's annual spring gathering. So we presented this mostly to our fellow students and alumni and friends of the program. But what it looked like was a parent preview night for sex, intimacy, and society class in 2052. So we did a lot of work to make this classroom setting feel familiar, like a high school parent-teacher conference, but also a lot more intimate. So we had like classroom sex ed posters, but we were also handing out chocolates and tea and flowers. And we had, um, we did have one prop, uh, Judy, the inflatable sex doll, who was handing out our persona sheets. <laughs> and I think people really enjoyed the coming into the experience part of it. And so one participants were in, we have an introduction where we did the history of our scenario, how we got to this future, where we moved past shame and sexual relationships.
1: Can I add one thing about the personas? Can I, I believe that the persona part is, was very interesting because one of the methodology that we use was ethnographic experiential futures. The personas helped a lot because sometimes when we talk about something so sensitive, uh, we didn't want to create more uncomfortable uh, for people. So we created personas in order for them to, they were able to pick if they want to be themselves or if they want to be the persona, and, and that created a very a good transpersonal experience too, because we quite create like a, a portal of liberation. Let me yep. be this. Let me pick up, right?
0: That's a good point, Igor, because that's again one of the ways to use the future, particularly when people are in a sort of drama or trauma of the prison, is to use the future as a space when the drama or trauma has gone away. Future means you don't need to play you, you can play future you. You could be a different you. You don't need to tell us how you've happened. It's just this person in the future relating this way. And that is the liberation, but that's also the pathway for how people can act in the present.
1: Yeah. The futures for us worked a lot as a cushion, right? Let's talk about it. And it protected uh, the, the audience, let's say. Yeah, we
3: also had a shame-breaker exercise, a bit of a play on icebreaker. I think that one's interesting. So can you maybe just unpack
0: both what it was you did, but also what you were trying to do?
3: Yeah, so starting with what it was we did, we had people write down a shameful or guilty pleasure of yours in the past that has now become a shameless pleasure. And we had a lot of really great responses from that, ranging from, I like to eat candy in the bathtub, to really personal ideas about their sex life or their body. And we mixed up the papers and traded them around, and each parent would read another person's pleasure out loud, and we'd make a statement of acceptance for that person's pleasure sure. we affirm and appreciate one of them that we had planted in case the people didn't want to share these was I have a micropenis. And so we said, we affirm and appreciate your micropenis. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that really uh goes into what we were trying to do with that was to break the ice, make everyone a little bit more comfortable, and also address some of the hard feelings about sexuality in a a fun and playful way.
2: Yeah,
4: good.
0: Thanks, Elizabeth.
3: So, so David,
0: I'm now moving back out of of the process into you now as proto-futurist. What did you learn? What have you learned? And what does the group learn about the craft of doing
2: this sort of work? Oh, goodness. We've learned a lot. Um, we've learned a lot of good things. We've learned some not so good things. And we've learned a lot about ourselves and each other and some of our audience members, whether intentionally or not. We did a couple of run-throughs during spring gathering, and we did a virtual walk-through for the APF next virtual conference before later that summer. And then most recently, we presented at the World Future Studies Federation 25th Conference in Paris. And after that one, <clears throat> as we were hopwashing washing as a group afterwards to help process our own emotions a bit, the question came up, was our exhibit a futures thinking workshop or was it like an actual sex and intimacy workshop? And we had to clarify the purpose because none of us are really qualified to host like an actual sex and intimacy workshop. We we don't have that expertise, but as we go forward, I think we're talking more with people who do have those skills because they're important. We've learned as we've gone through this, that the the idea of experiential futures and adopting personas and playing a role, they're very powerful. They're very powerful, transformative tools and the impact they can have on your audience is real and it can happen immediately. Mm. You think you're easing into something and then suddenly everybody's right there together. We've had to lean into developing skills as moderators and facilitators and and improvisation skills. When someone decides to lean into their character and bring up sex in space, zero gravity or virtual, you have to be on your toes to be able to take the conversation Right there with them and it's always a surprise yeah is one of the reasons that we have to hot wash afterwards to go okay we were riding right at the edge of losing control of the audience which is where you want to be in this situation but you yep. also keep them safe right we're talking about hard topics yeah,
0: yeah. and it's true david it's one of the things that's been happening in the field experiential futures have always been part of the field I would say more and more people are leaning into experiential because the di- the research data is excellent that this actually, this is actually a powerful way to help people you know, prepare for and manage change. However, because there is power, there is actually responsibility for the people doing it. These are not tools. And so the professional responsibility for you setting these things up, there will be groups that you should not do this with. Or oh, yes. There are groups that you need to prepare to find out whether you think they're ready or they want to go there.
2: Right. We learn that not everyone's ready for the conversation, despite what they may tell you before they walk in the room. But in spite of that, there's an interest, right? There's a yes. growing interest and appetite for this topic, and it's worth exploring. But you're right, we have a responsibility to navigate safely through that uncertainty. And the fact that we're able to set it 29 years now, but originally 30 years out, that's a very distant time horizon. And as Ingrid said earlier, it's a cushion, if you will, to enable the discussion of harder topics. And when we use the personas to help people displace into the future, that helps. It pushes the conversation past current litanies and puts them into a a different space. And we use some of the sci-fi prototyping techniques to really big air quotes here, solve some certain issues so that we can move past that, right? This is now off the table. What do you want to talk about now? Because if we didn't do that, the conversation would just chur right there. And that's not what we want. We want to be able to get past that and see what's beyond it. Um, On a more humorous note, I think we've all learned that if you want to see a future without shame or with less shame about sex and intimacy, you got to be pretty shameless about how you talk about it. When we've been talking as a team, I'm very sure we have startled people who were sitting around us and walking by. <laughs> yeah. Our th- any conversations are even better, they are chef's kiss. I was
0: but- just going to make the point, David. The- One of the things when you are working in organizations and it mightn't be sex and intimacy that you use, but taking a group to wrestle with a difficult question and giving them the experience of then handling it well has built a level of trust and relationship that the group can take on other difficult questions. So there's actually a scaffolding process you can build with people where people become confident in themselves, confident in the others. And as you said, there is a real hunger for people who want to tackle difficult questions. There's also naturally a fear that they don't know how to do it. So a developmental approach in organizations with groups to just give them both technique and confidence that they can continue to tackle more and more difficult things. By using ideas like displacement and that kind of thing, so yeah congratulations
2: Thank you we're all okay I'll speak for me. I feel i'm I'm much better as a futurist, even though I'm still nascent I haven't graduated. I think I can speak for the group here. We're all better for having done this for having come through the other side of it um, we all want to see better futures, right not just yeah. about sex and intimacy but about all kinds of things yes. and this is only fortified that desire within us. it's also told us that it's okay and it's necessary to have hard conversations because even in the best, most aspirational future, there are still going to be hard conversations. Cool. Thanks, Doug.
0: So moving on, Ingrid, as you were working on this project and having these wonderful, shameless conversations, I'm sure you started noticing things happening around you in the world. The future doesn't wait for anyone, does it?
1: Oh, Peter, thank you for this question because yes, and we saw trends in the more like positive sides, negative sides, and they helped a lot for us to build the persona because every single detail on artifact that we created was based in research, right? One that we found is the loneliness epidemic. Mm -hmm. We noticed that. The solitude can, it's trending, sadly, to occur more in any time of your life, any age, and which can lead to growing demand for mental health support. The other one was the increasing interest for neutral names, genderless names. And we use those names. We make sure to use those names on our personas. Longevity. In also intergenerational uh, household, So we noticed too that it tended to be harder for having a relationship in the future. Why? Now we are living longer, and the tendency to the younger generation to take care of the elderly, we saw that. And the hard time of economics on that, we also noticed the other social behavioral one was non-traditional relationships. So we noticed a growing acceptance on exploration of non-traditional relationship, like polyamory, open relationships in general, consensual non-monogamy, this was a strong one too. And another one was open communication about sex and intimacy in parts of your body. So under technology trends. We noticed also the transition change in the industry and semantic idea from sex industries to wellness industry. Um, so which will help and foster sexual wellness and self-care, diversity, also through pleasure, like naturalizing pleasure. This is one that we saw, um, a higher interest in female industry of self-care and sex tech product. We see a very visual difference between sex, tech toys for more gender. Like we are seeing uh, more designers, women designers for sex tech in for toys for female audience. And of course, COVID was a driver of this one that I'm about to talk, which is the long distance intimacy solution. Right. Uh-huh. We are seeing innovations in technology and platform facilitating that connectivity, right? So we see long distance kissing, mach- kissing machine that you link to your cell phone and you can feel vibration from the other person. Another one that is not that nice, it was cyberbullying, a trend for uh, cyber bullying and online harassment. So offensive name calling, fake AI use for, uh, damage another person, giving images without consent, or even sending uh, uh, images without the consent of the person.
0: Interesting, Ingrid, one of the things that when I was working as a scanner and a trend spotter, one of the things I'd learned and I often had to bring to organizations was Taboo areas, like sex is traditionally societally a taboo area, are some of the fastest adopters of alternative ways of doing things. And I actually, as a scanner, I learned to pay careful and detailed attention as to what taboo topics were going on. Not that the taboo topics themselves were that interesting, but they were the people who were most creative in adopting early adopters of things. And I wonder whether that's an experience that the team has learned that while they may not go on and do work in this space, they are going to pay attention to this area because it is so dynamic.
1: Super dynamic, super. And it's always changing. Like we, between now, we have a little group and we are all the time like sending with scan hits because this area. Is organic, like we are humans, we are organic. It's changing all the time. And this reflects on our project because so far we presented this project three times at the Lean Spring Gathering and other in Paris right now and a virtual presentation. So in all that, we are adjusting. We needed to add something. We needed to pay more attention in certain types of, of trends. So you are completely one hundred percent right. We are watching it, and we are just in it because we have to. Oh.
0: Thanks, Ingrid. The communication question: How's and You're the one talking about sex, isn't that? Isn't that a fun topic to have conversations about? So, what did the group, and what did you learn about the way that we need to communicate so people can have these kinds of
4: challenging conversations? Yes. I think. Yeah, I think that's a great question, honestly. I think the way that we designed this experience was so that we can have these kinds of challenging conversations in really any setting, right? So the way we approach the future of sex and intimacy was using the topic as a vehicle for participants to go through these emotions, disgust, embarrassment, fear that they'll have to inevitably go through when they create change themselves. So... This is distinct, right, from shaping the futures of sex and intimacy itself. We we're talking about it a few days ago, and it's like opening a fridge and seeing the Grand Canyon. So they go in expecting and, and then actually talking about sex and intimacy, but they walk out having built that trust and confidence that you were talking about in, in being able to navigate those difficult emotions. So what we've learned is that there's a lot of powerful emotions that come and reside. In the realm of sex and intimacy, can actually create the conditions for participants to be able to have these conversations, even if it's even though that they're adjacent to what they might actually need to talk about the boardroom, for example, or when they're engaging with communities. One of the, you know, contributions, you know, that like practitioners or really anyone might might have from from this, from this project is to really reconsider how framing a project uh, might actually create a stronger resonance between participants in the topic, right? So these future of work or roads or waste management, those are all important topics, but oftentimes it doesn't really hold that same energy that sex and intimacy does. And so being able to frame those, how, how do we frame those, and maybe reconsider the way we've been framing them to create that connection uh, is something that, we're, we've definitely learned through this process.
0: Open futures that are important to people have a strong emotional connection. And those emotions can both, I think what you're saying is they can both get in the way of people ever being able to talk about them. But if you can find a way to frame those emotions, don't just let you get past the ability to talk about it and actually become part of the mechanism for how you actually achieve sustainable change is that what you're saying
4: yeah absolutely it's an access it's an access to real change going through that experience like when we feel those powerful emotions it's something we don't forget we create memories and we create partnership uh when we share that with people who maybe sometimes we haven't had the best relationship with or we haven't really had the chance to partner with that's really at least to me like one of the, the things that our our project can continue to build on and impact communities around the world is really like surfacing and transforming the, with this previous emotion like previously traditionally like not great things to feel as something as an actor's point rather than a barrier so yeah, that's you're totally on I think we're on the same page, Peter.
0: Have you got any I'd say tips and techniques, but you talked about framing questions so emotions can be surfaced, but also not get in the way of having the conversation. If if someone's going into an organization to talk about it, might be waste, it might be what's happening at a local government there can still be powerful emotions but you talk about framing what are some of the ways you can reframe something so you can make emotions work for you and not a blocker
4: i think as it relates to this project i think one of the things we did is frame the experience as sexual education in 2052 and what that does is it creates a learning environment or a learning context in which you know when these emotions come up that That's the context in which they experience that emotion is, okay, learning. Now we've had moments at a really high tension where sometimes it's so strong that it brings kind of the experience. That's where the iteration piece comes in. The second thing I would, that I think might help to reframe that is the, within this sexual education design, we have curriculum that are basically activities for participants to go through. And so, we can, depending on the context that we're presenting in, we can create these activities to add some guardrails or add some design the activities in a way, that, or create a propensity for them to shift the way that these emotions occur for them. I think so, a couple yeah. other
0: things I know, I heard, and I'm not saying these you should use these all the time, but you used humor, so you used the sex doll, and again won't always be the thing to do, but sometimes humour can shift it. Another one you did was the thing that um, Elizabeth described where you used the bowl with the shame, Where people write down something that was shameful that is now a pleasure and then got people to read other people's out. So they, they didn't have to defend theirs. Someone else defended theirs. They defended someone else's. And that notion of displacing and, and deconnecting objections and emotions is, can be very powerful. So I applaud you for both those two. So yeah, Roll that
5: If I could share what one more element of it is like with the breaker activity, when we seeded certain statements, certain shameful statements that are no longer shameful, it brought it into the room, right? So now for all the participants know, it actually was someone who wrote that. And now yeah. you're, ap- you're engaging with it in a very real embodied way as opposed to a concept out there. And I think that, that was also quite yeah. powerful.
0: Oh, look, you, uh, as soon as someone wrote down something, it was named. And it was named by someone you don't know in this room. So the next thing I say, I have to be careful what I say next because that person who wrote that is listening. And people are smart enough most of the time to understand that I won't say something hurtful if I don't know who I'm going to hurt. It's a typewriter but beautifully done, beautifully done.
1: Yeah. And, and that, just adding on that, like in the end of the day, we also exercise compassion because yes. again, like you, we created like a safe containers, but also people reflect upon putting themselves in the other people's place, like even if we just a persona and we exercise that sentiment, right? Which I think might be the key for a shameless society yeah. to maintain a shameless society.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Compassion is the ability to have someone else's emotions. That is compassion. So we'll wrap this up. Ingrid, you've got the you've got the microphone for the last part.
1: Okay, I I would like to thank you first of all for this opportunity. Because it's not easy to find a channel to speak about sex, about intimacy, about emotions, right? And thank you for that, for, for this opening. So what we learn after our workshops, every time we do it, we debrief with the people and one thing that caught our heart and attention was one person said don't let the discussion die we mm-hmm. all need that and thank you for not letting the discussion die and we have this intention to contribute for the normalization of this conversation and we are open to even if any other stakeholders are interested in talking about that and see, watch our workshop. Why not? right? And yeah, I would like to say thank you and open up a little bit the space for this amazing team to say that last words as well.
2: During our Paris presentation, my son, who was stationed in Europe, was able to take leave and come visit with me while I was in Paris. So he attended our workshop. And no, it's not awkward. He's an adult. He's a soldier. But he participated in one of the exercise sizes, and he was telling me about it later. Right? I got like an extended debrief because we're walking the streets of Paris. And his scenario, his exercise scenario involved gender change, which in 2052, we have decided is an over-the-counter medication-driven procedure. It's non-surgical. Take these pills, and a week later, you're a different gender. And you can change back infinitely reversible, right? We've taken it off the table as a contentious issue. He was working with his companion. And at some point they said, wait a minute, I've changed gender from male to female and the change is complete and I've become pregnant. Am I legally allowed to change back? He asked me this, and he, and I, we were walking on the streets of Paris and I had to stop and go, wait a minute, because it was insight that just took the whole, we went in an entirely different direction and it was just a random statement, a random realization that occurred during the participation of this. The different branches and places you can go when exploring this topic in the future are not limited. Thanks, David. Yeah.
0: Can I jump in and ask a question? The IPF awards, Doing the recognising best students' work, the APF wants to recognise good work. It wants to support institutions, you know, teaching features and foresight. But from your perspective, are the awards a cliched idea and really do we need awards to identify just a handful of people and say your work is good? Or is this really a worthwhile exercise continuing?
4: I think, I think one thing that stands out to me at least is in, I think like our experience, my experience of our group winning this award, I think it really made a difference in terms of momentum of what we, what I believed was possible for this project. And that was really thanks to one, the courage to keep on putting this work out there, but two, to apply from our professor, Adam and and, and Julie, the lab, our our lab director, right? So I, I think It made, for me, it made a difference in the the group of, oh, okay, like we won an APF award. Let's just start applying for things. Let's keep trying this. And it led to one of, it led to a lot of iteration that I think it's not the only thing, but for me, I think it made a difference.
5: Yeah. I think what I hear in that is, is getting that positive feedback and the support from people within the community. And so... Do I think that our project is necessarily the best that was submitted and that's why we won. or in work that is so subjective, right? It's hard to say that. So I think for me, I would love to see ways that we can more regularly provide that feedback to early futurists and to support them and say, hey, this is interesting. Go here are the ways that you can take this further. That I think is at the core of what the awards serve for
1: us, and, and it would be amazing if more people got that opportunity as well. And for your question, I would say a big yes to keep doing it because you are giving voice for some topics that may have never been heard. And you are facilitating that that path. So a big yes for
0: y'all. I'm going to wrap it. Look, it's been okay. On behalf of the APF, congratulations for winning Best Masters Student Awards this year. Congratulations on the work. I think the work is both courageous and creative. Fantastic. And thanks for also finding some time, spend some time with the Future Pod
5: community. Thank you.
0: Thank
5: you. Thank
0: you, you, Peter. Thank you. I hope you found encouragement and ideas from the Shameless Collective team about using the future to have important and difficult conversations in the present. Future Pond is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support the Pond, please check out the Patreon link on the website. Hello Peter Highwood, thanks for joining us today.